Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. And the thing I wrote about a lot in Good Chemistry is this hormone oxytocin. You know, as much as the fight or flight system is sort of run by adrenaline and cortisol, which are bad for your body, especially long term, the parasympathetic is run by oxytocin, which is great for your body. It is a pro-healing hormone. It is anti-inflammatory. Unique thing about oxytocin is that it helps us to bond socially. It helps us to trust and it helps us to figure out who's on our team, who's on our side and who's in our tribe, which will help us to have stronger social connections. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Kaplankaya with Dr. Julie Holland. She's a psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist, and the author of the bestsellers Moody Beaches and more recently, Good Chemistry, the Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. In this episode, Dr. Holland takes us on a journey into the fascinating world of oxytocin, the love hormone, and shares insights on how to boost its levels naturally or through various substances. Notably, Julie is a vocal advocate for drug legalization and will explore the reasons behind her stance. However, please remember that nothing discussed in this show should be considered medical advice or an endorsement of drug use. Our goal is to inform and inspire, not to provide medical recommendations. Hello, Julie. Hi, thanks for having me, Rose. Thank you for being here very early this morning. Sure. On the show. <laughs> so first question, you talked during your speech yesterday about connection, disconnection. Why should we care? Why is it so important today? Yes, it is very important. And we are sort of more disconnected than ever physically, even though we may feel more connected electronically. We're designed to be social. The humans are a social animal. We're social primates. And we're actually sort of uh, defined or designated as obligatorily gregarious, which means that we have to be social in order to survive. You know, back on the savannah, if your tribe didn't help you hunting and preparing the food or building a shelter or finding a mate, you were going to die. So on a, on a really deep primal level, We are genetically hardwired to do very poorly when we're disconnected uh, and to be in a state of fight or flight when we're isolated. When we're connected, we're basically in the other side of fight or flight, which is called parasympathetic. And that's really the state of, of mind and body that is more healthy. To be more specific, so what are the impact on uh, mental health and uh, physical health? There are a lot. I mean, it's basically like, like asking, well, what is the impact if you stay in fight or flight all the time? What would that do to your body, right? So fight or flight, it gets you ready to attack or escape. And so your adrenaline is up, your heart rate is up, your breathing is up, your blood pressure is increased, and also your blood sugar is increased. 
by cortisol. So the fight or flight system is mostly adrenaline and cortisol. And those are okay for your body in short bursts, right? If you have to run for a minute or you have to hide for a few minutes, but it's not meant to go on for days and days and weeks and weeks that you are in this state of fear and avoidance. It's really bad for your body. It's also bad for your brain. It's it's a pro-inflammatory state where you are more prone to illness and your metabolism is deranged and your immune system is deranged. So all those things really take a toll. And this is what we talk about with chronic stress. Chronic stress leads to physical problems Mm -hmm. and mental, emotional problems. Chronic stress leads to depression. It obviously leads to anxiety and panic disorder. Um, And then it's sort of like a, a vicious cycle where you're stressed and you're depressed So you're not feeling well, you don't take good care of yourself, you don't eat well, you don't go see your friends, and all those things, not sleeping, not eating well, not being social, they put you in fight or flight. So you have this situation, a vicious cycle, where uh, you're in fight or flight, that causes emotional problems, which keeps you in fight or flight. So it's physically damaging, mentally damaging, socially damaging. You know, when you're uh, scared or anxious, you have terrible social skills. So you can't get out of this hole. You can't get any friends when you're paranoid. So what are the solutions, I guess, like see your friends, uh, be more connected, eat well, sleep well, would be the number one uh, solutions. But when it's gone too bad, what do you do? Yeah. So one of the things I talk about with my patients in my private practice is that you want to focus on things that are anti-inflammatory. Being in fight or flight is a pro-inflammatory state. You don't want inflammation inflammation, bad. So, um, having an anti-inflammatory diet, which basically is just like a colorful whole foods diet that doesn't have a lot of white things in Mm -hmm. it, you know, bread, pasta, flour, sugar, rice, pretty much anything that's white, not a lot of nutrients. It kind of gums up the works. So those are pro-inflammatory foods. So anti-inflammatory diet is one anti-inflammatory activities, the things like yoga, meditation, things where you're breathing through your nose and you're calm. Those are anti-inflammatory. Even things like singing, chanting, floating. Those are also things that will put you in the parasympathetic state away from fight or flight. Anything in parasympathetic is anti-inflammatory, but the big one and the thing I wrote about a lot in good chemistry is this hormone oxytocin. You know, as much as the fight or flight system is sort of run by adrenaline and cortisol, which are bad for your body, especially long term, the parasympathetic is run by oxytocin, which is great for your body. It is a pro-healing hormone. It is anti-inflammatory. But the unique thing about oxytocin is that it helps us to bond socially. It helps us to trust And it helps us to figure out who's on our team, who's on our side and who's in our tribe, which will help us to have stronger social connections. So a lot of the book of good chemistry is talking about oxytocin. Where do we get it? How do we have oxytocin? So extended eye contact, um, hand holding, cuddling, any skin to skin contact, sex, orgasm is a very high oxytocin state, especially post orgasm when you feel kind of calm and sleepy and connected to your partner, very high oxytocin state. Childbirth, nursing is an incredibly high oxytocin state. That whole mechanism of of parent-infant bonding 
it's all about oxytocin. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't have that very basic bonding with the infant, there are going to be huge problems with the mother and the child for a long period of time. So oxytocin is really important. So sort of anything that'll give you oxytocin is going to be good for connecting. And naturally, for Julie, you can't have too much oxytocin. The downside for her could be this idea of, are you on my team or are you on the other team? And the way that we would behave to people that we don't perceive are in our team. Or another negative side would be if you don't want to be in a trusting situation and someone gives you oxytocin, as you can get oxytocin also through substances. Let's talk now about the controversial topic of drug legalization. Dr. Julie Holland has been a vocal advocate for the legalization of marijuana for medical and recreational use. I asked her if she could explain why. Um, first of all, cannabis helps to put you in this parasympathetic state. Cannabis is a potent anti-inflammatory medicinal plant. And it's all about keeping inflammation down. So cannabis, and if you don't want to be altered, just CBD is a potent anti-inflammatory. So that's sort of number one from a medical point of view. But the other issue is that relaxing, anything that's recreational, where you're feeling playful, where you're laughing, laughing puts you in parasympathetic. Uh, recreational play will put you in parasympathetic. So it's it's good for your body. And, you know, dare I say, it's good for your soul you know, to feel sort of light and playful. One of the things cannabis does pretty reliably is something called dehabituation, which is sort of like everything old is new again. You, you look at things with fresh eyes, you know, a flower that you might've walked by 10 times and then you have some cannabis and you don't walk by, you really are looking at it as if you've never seen it before. That sort of cleansed perspective is really good for you cognitively and emotionally. You mentioned uh, CBD. What are the doses, like if you want to sleep or if you want to relax? What yeah. are the good things? So, so CBD, you know, some people say it's the non-psychoactive component of cannabis, but that's not really accurate because it is psychoactive, but it doesn't get you high. It's sort of not non-altering to that extent, okay. but it does, it is very calming and soothing. Um, for most people, CBD isn't really that sedating. It's just sort of calming. So if you're the kind of person who gets anxious about sleep, then CBD will help you sleep, but it's not going to knock you out the way a sleeping pill will. So I recommend that my patients take around 15 to 25 milligrams, usually twice a day. It's actually fairly short acting. So I have my patients start in the morning with one a day, and then eventually I ask them to have a second one in the afternoon or evening. This is great for, for any inflammatory illness you have, but it's also really helpful for panic and anxiety. Okay, good. So I have a lot of my patients take CBD. Um, it also can help you sort of stay calm and focused. So if I have somebody who's got issues around focus and maybe they think they have ADHD, you know, they think they have attention problems, you don't have to just take a, a stimulant, you know, like Adderall or Ritalin. CBD can be an option in that situation. And what about marijuana addiction and the good dose uh, in a therapeutic or a recreational way? Yeah. So the first thing I would probably reiterate is that uh, this dichotomy of like, this is recreational and this is therapeutic, that is a false dichotomy. Recreation is therapeutic. 
Mm-hmm. So we don't, we don't have to sort of divide, the, you know, like if you're having fun, you're not doing it right. That's really not true. Being, you know, laughing, being silly, giggling, that is therapeutic. That's yeah, going to, that is going to be an anti-inflammatory, yeah. put you in parasympathetic yeah. behavior. So it's okay. It's okay to have recreational use. I am a proponent of decriminalizing all drugs, every single drug. It's not Uh, You shouldn't have to go to jail because you want to get high or you want to feel good. I also have to mention, you know, we have a a big opiate crisis in America where where we had a lot of people taking painkillers that are derived from the poppy plant. And the crisis now is that that supply was poisoned with fentanyl. And so people are dying from overdoses. But the reason why so many people choose opium and choose heroin and choose uh, Percocet and all of these opioids is because they feel good and they mimic the feeling of being held as if you were a baby being held by the mother, which is a very high oxytocin state. Okay. So there's a similarity. Is it will, and they, and they will put you over into a parasympathetic state very efficiently. I, one of the reasons why I want cannabis to be available medically and legally is that I have some patients who really are only comfortable with the medical model. And back before cannabis was illegal, I, you know, if I had somebody saying, okay, I feel like medical cannabis is right for me, but I don't have that option. I can't go to a dispensary. I live in a state where it's not legal. And then I would have to say like, well, do you know any teenagers? (laughs) Because they will probably know where to get some. And, you know, my patients don't want to go make friends with a teenager to get their cannabis. So I just, I feel like it needs to be available. I would like all drugs to be decriminalized, but the more that they can actually be legalized, they can be available. Uh, There will be less sort of drug substitution. It's less of an issue with cannabis, right? There's not a lot of fake pot or, you know, cannabis that's laced with fentanyl. I mean, that's really a myth. So it's safer you buy something, it looks like pot, it's probably pot. If it smells like cannabis and it doesn't smell very chemically, that's probably safe. The stakes go up, the risks go up with other drugs where if you buy the wrong thing on the street, you can die. The first order of business, you know, with doctors is do no harm. I am a harm reductionist, number one. So one of the ways to reduce harm is to make sure you have a safe drug supply. And the way to make sure you have a safe drug supply is to make it legal and legally available so people know what they're getting. And what would be the impact on the um, addictions? Addiction is a, is a complicated term, and there are lots of different things to think about with addiction. I mean, the drugs that are most addictive, the biggest problem is that if you abruptly stop using them, that could be a medical emergency. So if you are an alcoholic and you drink a lot of alcohol every single day and then and then you lose your supply, say you get arrested and you're in jail and you can't maintain your alcoholism, the if you go into acute withdrawal from alcohol, there's a 30% chance that you will have seizures that don't stop and you may die. So this is a drug that is widely available in almost every culture um, except for sort of Islamic uh, countries where, uh, there is less alcohol. And I really like visiting those countries actually. (laughs) So, but it's very, very dangerous, uh, in, in withdrawal. And it's also very dangerous. You can have an alcohol overdose that will also kill you. So this is an example of a drug, which is legal and available, which still has a lot of 
issues around addiction and tolerance and withdrawal True. that are dangerous. And not to mention all the stupid behaviors that happen when you're inebriated. So you don't have this risk with cannabis. It is not medically dangerous to abruptly stop. And there, there is about a, I would say a nine or 10% or some people are putting that number a little bit higher where people, uh, become compulsive around their use. But the idea of addiction, there's different parts to addiction, right? There's getting tolerant to a drug. So you need more and more. There's uh, having a withdrawal syndrome. If you stop the withdrawal syndrome with cannabis is very, very mild. And most people are able to start and stop without it being particularly dangerous. You know, if you look at say heroin or cocaine, those drugs are fairly addicted. Not everybody who uses them will get addicted, but a higher percentage than alcohol, which is below that. And cannabis is at the bottom. The only thing lower are psychedelics. Okay. Very, very low. The most addictive drug that is the easiest to get addicted to and the hardest to quit. And you'd be like heroin, right? No. Cigarettes. Nicotine. Of course. Okay. Easiest to get addicted to. Hardest to quit. And now with people vaping, they are really seeing that firsthand. It's very hard to stop vaping. Uh, What would be, what's the data uh, on the impact of the young kids I had heard that um, their development, their brain development, if they take drug, uh, would be altered, and they could not make the right connection in their brain. So the brain isn't really fully formed until about age 24, 25. So there's still a lot of brain development that's going on in adolescence, late teens, early 20s. There's, if you think of like growing a bush and the bush gets bushier and bushier and bushier, and then eventually you come in and you prune, you cut and shape the bush because it's gotten too big and too bushy. That's the metaphor for what happens in the brain um, where there's more and more connections being built in the brain. And then in the late teens, early twenties, there is pruning that happens. Okay. So this pruning phase is a a very delicate phase for the brain to be in. And if you're going to have problems, it's, it's likely around this pruning phase. So People with schizophrenia, the first time that they get psychotic, it's usually in their late teens, early 20s. People with bipolar disorder, they may have episodes of depression, but usually the first time they get manic with that up phase, late teens, early 20s. So it's a particularly delicate time in brain development, but unfortunately, it's also the most common time to try new drugs. So, you know, that's sort of an unfortunate confluence of two things. Um, It doesn't mean that trying drugs is going to give you schizophrenia or make you crazy, but it is a higher risk to be taking drugs in the teens, late teens, early 20s. I guess the whole uh, debate for the government would legalize it, would make it more popular or more easy and would encourage people. What's your view on that? In the States, in America, where there has been legalization, they have been really watching the kids and whether the kids are yeah. using more drugs or not and how they perceive drugs. Um, and there hasn't really been an increase in teen cannabis use in states that are legalized. And there definitely hasn't been an increase in diagnoses of, of psychosis or psychotic illnesses in states that have legalized. So we haven't really seen the things that people were afraid of have not come to pass. I mean, California and Maine, they've been legal since the 90s. You know, they're not all of a sudden, uh, I mean, they haven't over these last, you know, 30 years, they haven't had these increases in psychotic illness uh, or in sort of cannabis addiction in kids. It's really easy to quit smoking pot and the medical risks of smoking are minimal. And it, it also just really comes down to safety. It is safer to have 
a, a sort of a clean drug supply that where people know what they're getting, the strength is marked, you know, the milligram strength is marked or it says what the potency is, that is safer than sort of, you know, going on the illicit market, not knowing what you're getting, not knowing if there's anything extra added to it, not knowing how strong it is. During the last part of this interview, let's delve deeper into the impact of drugs on our bodies and explore the common question that Dr. Julie Hollins often encounters. But before, we'll take a closer look at Julie's unique journey. What first uh, put you on this path of um, to start a career in uh, psychiatry and uh, psychopharmacology? From a very young age, I was really interested in drugs. I mean, one of my earliest memories is is my mom <laughs> telling my dad that he should have a beer before she pops a big pimple on his back. It's not a very pretty memory, but the, I just I really paid attention to like why is dad getting a beer before mom, you know, does a procedure on him? Like, is what is this anesthesia? But I was very, very young. I didn't understand. And then when I was eight years old, I was at a concert with my aunt. We were seeing the Ohio players. She let me have a sip of her beer. And I noticed that the people behind me at the concert were like, look at the little girl drinking a beer. And I was just like, wait a minute. Adults are paying attention to me. Why? You know, what is this thing that, you know, so I, I just, I got some little positive reinforcement for drinking a beer when I was little. And then when I was about 10 years old, I tried a cigarette to see what it felt like. And then when I was 12, I tried cannabis to see what it felt like. And then when I was 14, I tried LSD to see what it felt like. And I, I was like a drug researcher. I was very interested. I, you know, I took notes, like, what does this do? When I was 15, I was very curious about mescaline. I had tried mushrooms. I had tried LSD. I wanted to try mescaline. And in an effort to try mescaline, I inadvertently... Sorry, I don't know what is mescaline. Oh, so, so right. mescaline is a, is a psychedelic. You know, uh, mushrooms last maybe four to six hours and LSD lasts maybe 10 or 12 or more hours. Mescaline is in the middle there. It lasts okay. about six to, okay. six to eight hours. It is the active ingredient in a peyote cactus It's also active ingredient and another cactus called uh, San Pedro. Okay. So I was trying, I wanted to see what mescaline felt like, but I inadvertently experienced PCP. Okay. And, and right. PCP is not a psychedelic. It's a drug that, that induces a, a psychotic state, uh, not at forever, but for the night. So I had the experience of being psychotic. I had psychotic symptoms. It was a very scary experience for me, but it got me really interested in psychosis and what the experience of psychosis is. So that was number one. But number two, I think it got me interested in harm reduction. I didn't know it at the time, but I was Uh, indignant, you know, if I want to take mescaline, I should be able to take mescaline. Why did I end up with PCP? That's not, that's not right. You know, how, this shouldn't be. So I think I got interested in this idea of drug substitution and the safe drug supply from a very young age. So I was always interested in the brain and drugs. And I knew I wanted to be a doctor from a very, very young age. You know, I was a girl and people would say like, oh, you should be a nurse. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm going to be a doctor. Yay. <laughs> so I, it, and I, I'm going to be a brain doctor. So I didn't know if I was going to be like a neurosurgeon or a neurologist or a psychiatrist, but given my lifelong fascination with drugs, the best fit in all of medicine is psychiatry. After med school, nine years in uh, Philadelphia, you applied to Mount Sinai in New York City. I chose Mount Sinai because they had the most schizophrenia research. And also I thought I could do MDMA research there. 
After the FDA approved the first MDMA study, I went to the chair of Mount Sinai and I said, we should do MDMA research here. And he was like, absolutely not. There's no way that's ever going to happen here. So I made peace with that. I had to stay there for four years. But now the sort of funny thing, 30 plus years later, is Mount Sinai is finally doing MDMA PTSD research. (laughs) It took a long time. I mean, you know, I sort of joke like, I am patient, but I'm not. And like, if they had just listen to me, you know, they could have been the absolute first in the country instead of, you know, being eighth. But uh, still, I'm very happy that Mount Sinai is now doing MDMA PTSD research. Um, so I've, I've been a medical monitor for these studies, MDMA PTSD research. So these are studies where we do um, psychotherapy with people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, right? They've been traumatized in some way, uh, women who've been raped, men who've been in the military, men who've been raped, women who've been in the military, women who've been raped in the military, men who've been raped in the military, all these people who are, it's a very long, I mean, we've all been traumatized at this point, but there's sort of like big T trauma and little T trauma. So in the context of ongoing psychotherapy, you have a session where you give MDMA during the therapy and that session goes deeper, is more efficient, is more effective and importantly, one of the one of the main things MDMA does is it increases oxytocin, getting back to oxytocin. <laughs> so there is this enhanced trust and bonding for the therapist. So that really helps the whole therapeutic process. There's something called therapeutic alliance, which is a measurement of how closely aligned, you know, the client and the therapist is or the patient and the doctor is. Like if you really trust your therapist you're going to have a better outcome in the therapy. And MDMA enhances that trust for the therapist and the connection between the therapist and the client. The data from the MDMA PTSD trials uh, are very convincing. And next year, I believe, you know, MAPS, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they are the group that is spearheading the MDMA PTSD research. They will be presenting to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA of the United States, later this year. And I would say by early next year, we're going to get a a response and it's very possible that it will be FDA approved um, in 2025, 2024, excuse me. In 2025, I think that psilocybin will be approved to treat depression. So in a couple of years, we're going to have two new potent medicines that are used during psychotherapy to help the whole process go faster. You know, really good psychotherapy takes years It's like peeling an onion, you know, there's layers and layers. And then sometimes you get too close to things that are upset and then you lose the client maybe forever, or maybe they just go away for a few months and they come back and you try again. And it's like fits and starts. It's, you know, it's a long process. And so to have something that really just cuts that onion in half and gets to the middle and what is the issues and like, let's just focus on the stuff we need to focus on that will make psychotherapy much more effective and efficient in the long run, it will save everybody time and money. So these are going to be cost-effective medicines that I think will be embraced by psychiatry. We need new tools. We've had the same, same antidepressants since the eighties, you know, the same sort of SSRI model, the antidepressants that work on serotonin. We've had those since the eighties. People have been taking them since the eighties and the nineties. They've been taking them for decades. They are good. They're not great. Now we have some medicines coming that really are great and that are going to be more effective for people. Julie, I would like to ask you some uh, short questions. Good luck. <laughs> short for you. Short for me. We'll see. 
What are the most common questions you receive from people who take drugs? Now, the biggest question I get all the time is, I am on these antidepressants. I am taking these three medicines. Do I have to get off these medicines in order to have MDMA? Do I have to stop these medicines in order to have ayahuasca, which is a, another a, a psychedelic um, that has dangerous interactions with some medicines. So the thing I'm focusing on quite a bit now are these drug interactions. Okay. A lot of people in the United States are on psychiatric medicines. So since the 90s, more and more people are taking anti-anxiety medicines, sleeping pills, antidepressants, even antipsychotics for depression and for insomnia. So a lot of these medicines will interfere. They will either stop MDMA from happening or they will make ayahuasca dangerous I, I get a lot of people asking about drug interactions. That's the most common thing. The second most common thing is people asking about microdosing. So microdosing yeah. is placebo that you're, or not. Okay. So you're taking a small dose of a psychedelic, about a tenth of you know a big dose, and you might do that every few days, or you might do it like five days on and two days off. So a lot of people are asking me questions about microdosing, and also you know, people want to know about MDMA. They want to know about psilocybin mushrooms, mescaline, or ibogaine. You know, there's just a whole host of new, new to them, <laughs> not new to me, but you know, drugs they're hearing about, they're reading about. You know, I mean, yeah. psychedelics are trending. You know, they're getting more and more popular, more and more mainstream. There's more documentaries about them. They're featured more in scripted series. You know, you're seeing them everywhere. I mean, there was an episode on, on a show called Homeland years ago where they had like an Ibogaine session and nobody had ever heard of Ibogaine. So in popular media, in, in magazine articles, in, in scripted shows, people are being exposed to psychedelics, to microdosing, um, to cannabis. And so they just, they have basic questions. Well, like what... What's right for me? What would be best for yeah. me? Ketamine is everywhere. People have a lot of questions about ketamine. And centers, yeah. Ketamine, ketamine treatment centers, centers yeah. yeah. And a lot of these ketamine treatment centers, they're just sort of getting everything in place so that when MDMA is approved, when psilocybin is approved, the ketamine centers will be able to offer these other medicines. If I have to warn uh, my children who are into drugs about something, what is it? So what I've always warned my children about, I mean, the, if we're going to talk about drugs and kids, the first thing I would say is that you want your kids to be able to come to you and ask you questions. You don't want your kids to be afraid to talk to you about these things. So the number one thing you can do with your children is say, you can ask me anything. I will try to answer it. We will look for the answers together. We will sit down and, and find some reputable sources of drug information. My favorite is Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D, Arrowid.org. Very reliable drug information. But the point is to keep the lines of communication open. That is number one. As soon as they're hiding from you, you've lost the battle and the danger goes up. So that's number one. And just what I always said to my kids is number one, talk to me, ask me anything. Number two, no white powders. You're just not going to know what a white powder is. It might okay. be cocaine. It might not. You know, it's, it's too easy to fake it with a white powder. It's hard to fake cannabis. Pot looks like pot. It smells like pot. If it's wet and smells like a chemical, then something has been added to it and you shouldn't touch it. But short of that, you know, seeing is believing. Same thing with mushrooms. For the most part, if you're buying a psilocybin containing mushrooms, 
They're little brown shriveled up mushrooms. They look like mushrooms. So, you know, you're sort of safer with the natural plant medicines. Fungi is not officially a plant. It's its own kingdom, which is the fungi kingdom. So Hmm. that's the biggest thing to at least know what you're taking, you know, to start with a small dose or a small taste or, or, you know, you can't uneat it. So like, for instance, uh, let's say there's a chocolate bar that has THC in it that has, you know, it's like a, a pot brownie or a pot chocolate bar or something. It might be that that bar of chocolate has 100 milligrams of THC, which is way too much for any one person to have. It may be that the dose is one-tenth of a chocolate bar or the dose is one-quarter of a brownie. That's dangerous because most people don't eat a quarter of a brownie or a tenth of a chocolate bar. So it's really important that things are marked clearly with what they contain. One last question before uh, moving to the harvest of the day. If I have a low sexual desire and I want to change this, what should I do? That is very tricky. And again, I wrote about this in Moody Bitches quite a bit, but basically testosterone is something that makes women horny. And women have natural testosterone and some women have more testosterone. You know, you may have a friend who's like very muscular and maybe has like a little bit of a heavier brow and they're probably a little more horny and it's probably easier for them to climax. So you could take a little bit of testosterone. It's not common. Uh, Doctors don't like to prescribe testosterone for women, but it's very, very effective. But one thing to keep in mind with testosterone is it's going, it's, it is the hormone of novelty. You're going to be horny, but it's not going to be for the, for the guy you married. Um, <laughs> okay. So that is that, you know, <laughs> good that's to like, know. Good it's to like know. a side effect. Yeah. I mean, you know, okay. I, I mean, I joke with my patients that a side effect of testosterone <laughs> is infidelity because okay. you, because it is specifically a hormone of novelty. Also testosterone antagonizes oxytocin. They sort of work against each other. Okay. Oxytocin works best in an estrogen rich environment. So, but anyway, testosterone will make you horny. Novelty will make you horny. Uh, and if you are in a monogamous relationship, then you're just going to have to have that novelty in your head. Just mm-hmm. close your eyes and think about whatever new person you want. Uh, it's not cheating. Yeah. <laughs> and it can help things. Anything that increases your testosterone will increase your, your libido. And so that includes things like weightlifting, competitive sports, even just like running a race or playing tennis with your partner will increase your testosterone. So competition helps. Um, but the other thing I, I remind people, the way that a lot of hormones work, including sex hormones, is that they're actually, they respond to your environment. So like right now, my testosterone level might not be very high, but if a hot guy is is in here, you know, maybe this guy over here, like, I kind of like the way this guy looks. That's going to increase my testosterone. So you have, you know, it's sort of like putting the cart before the horse, but especially in women, if you wait around to get horny before you have sex, you may be waiting forever. Mm -hmm. If you start the process, kissing, cuddling, skin to skin, that gets the juices flowing. Literally, you have to start the process and then you'll get horny. It's different for men. Men will be horny and hard and then they'll have sex. Women have to like, jump in there, get going. And then during the process, they will start to get aroused. The truth is some women are the most aroused after they have semen inside them. So you may have to just say, well, you go first and then I'm going to go because it'll be easier for me after. And also there's a lot going on in the head around uh, the ability to climax and worrying that it's taking too long. So sometimes if, if the man is already ejaculating, you don't have to worry about taking too long. You know, you have as much time as you want now, (laughs) you know, so like now it's my turn. So it, it really requires a lot of communication, but a new partner 
is one of the most reliable ways uh, to increase your libido. That is just the sad truth for women. Last uh, question, uh, Julie. This is uh, harvest of the day. Question I'm asking to all the guests. Uh, if there is one thing that uh, gives you hope, what is it? Yes, FDA approval. The <laughs> I FDA, was expecting this. <laughs> the FDA is giving me hope. I mean, it's really okay. exciting. You know, I have I have been convinced since 1985 that MDMA would be useful in the field of psychiatry, and and finally, maybe 2025, it's going to happen. So. You know, that's 40 long years that I have been waiting. I've been friends with Rick Doblin since the 80s, and I've been saying to him, like, this is the long game. You know, I I'm like, are you keeping your cholesterol down? Is your blood pressure down? Because we have to be, you know, we have to be alive to see the fruits of our labor, but it's going to take a long time. So I have been eating an anti-inflammatory diet and taking very good care of myself so that I... I will be alive to see this event. So that gives me hope that, that these medicines will be available as medicines. Um, and also, you know, state by state, cannabis is, is becoming legal. It's becoming available. And now there are decriminalization bills happening where, where they're at least going to, going to make psychedelics decriminalized so that you won't, you know, it won't be a priority to prosecute people for psychedelics. So that's happening now even more quickly than cannabis legalization happens. So all of that gives me tremendous hope. Dr. Julie Holland, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Dr. Julie Holland shedding light on the importance of oxytocin in our lives. Her perspective on drug legalization may be controversial and opinions may vary, but her explanation offers valuable insights. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd greatly appreciate your support. You can leave us a positive review and join our community on Instagram at Harvest Series. You can also watch our podcast on youtube.com slash harvest series. Next episode will be five minutes with Prashant Goel about self-transformation. Don't miss it. Until next time.